Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. The parable of the wedding banquet. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Good morning, my name is Shane and I'm going to spend the next little period of time trying to explain the parable or story that we've just heard and seeing what Jesus meant by it, what does the author Matthew want to communicate through it, and how does it make a difference for us today? Which is an interesting little conundrum because I'm someone who has often come to parables and got confused. I know about you, but sometimes you read parables and things that you've got number riddles to do, you end up with weeping and gnashing of teeth, you got masters always going on trips. you got things pressed down, cups overflowing, and inevitably a fish or a sheep will turn up. They can be tricky. Are they, is, is this a riddle to solve? Is this an illustration? Sometimes Jesus says, see, I told you that, so that you wouldn't get it. And you can become confused. One of the other dangers with parables, or perhaps any uh, episode in some of these biographies of Jesus that we call Gospels, can be that we can read them kind of like a, a newspaper article. You know when you flick through the pages of, the, uh, of a newspaper, if you still do, and there'll be a story, and you read the story, and it's a conclusive story, and you go, great, flip the page, sports, and now you look at something different. Flip the page, finance, you look at something different. Sometimes because parables are such concluding stories, such holistic little accounts, you might read them separate from a whole story, in our case, that a guy called Matthew is writing to illustrate, highlight, and point to some of the things in the life of Jesus that he thinks are really important. And so one of the things we're going to try and do with our parable today is to not read it like a newspaper, but understand how it contributes to Matthew's biography or flowing narrative story of the life of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. The next thing that's tricky with the parable is to go, okay, so, wait, what are we talking about here? Because I was counting the sheep and looking at the fish, or what are we talking about? 
Well, in this parable, Jesus is talking about a thing called the kingdom of heaven. Again, this is not language that I used at Woolies yesterday, so it's worth taking a moment to understand. What is this kingdom of heaven? Because Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about what you do at work tomorrow. I'm talking about the kingdom of heaven in the first instance. So what is the kingdom of heaven? You might hear words like heaven and think, oh yeah, that's that, um, that's that place you go to when you die. So Jesus is talking about uh, me playing a harp on a cloud one day in a semi-transparent state. When Matthew uses the language of kingdom of heaven... He's putting his own little highlight on a concept in Scripture known as the kingdom of God. I think what Matthew is doing is trying to highlight that this kingdom of God thing really has a heavenly element to it. Why would I say that? Because Matthew, from the very beginning of his story, gives Jesus a nickname or highlights a nickname for Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He's wanting to say that this thing we're talking about binds heaven and earth together. When we're talking about the kingdom of heaven, we're not necessarily talking about a future thing. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is this. God's people in God's place under God's rule. It's a kind of citizenship. It's a community. And it manifests in many times and many places. The Garden of Eden. There was Adam and Eve, God's people. Eden, the garden, God's place. Under the Lord, who walked with them in the cool of the day, there was a manifestation of the kingdom of heaven. The people of Israel, there they were, Israel, chosen by God. That was God's people. They made it to the promised land. That was God's place. Under the lordship of Yahweh, their God, God's people, God's place, under God's rule. When Jesus comes along, he says, get ready. The kingdom of heaven is breaking. He's saying new things are coming. He's announcing himself as a king. The kingdom of heaven, well, it's a thing that happens today. The kingdom of heaven, if you're thinking, but I thought that's that thing when I die. Yeah, it is. Jesus describes it as paradise. That there is a time where we might die, but we'll be alive to the Lord. Still God's people under God's rule, in God's place. And then, of course, there is that ultimate picture of the kingdom of heaven where heaven, the dwelling place of God, and earth will actually come together and there will be no more separation, no more division. And God and his people will dwell together in the new creation, God's people under God's rule, perfectly in God's place for eternity. This thing that will have this end time significance, though it manifests in many places today and has at many times throughout history. Well, Jesus, because that's a pretty big thing, that's a sermon in itself. Jesus wants to say that kingdom of heaven idea, well, it's kind of like this. I'll get to the like this in a moment because one of the next things to observe with the parable is when is it told? It's told, as Matthew tells us, as Jesus told them, at a time known as Passion Week. A couple of days ago, in the life of Jesus, he walked into the city of Jerusalem. And there was a thing called the Triumphal Entry, where a lot of people said, here comes the king. Wow, this sounds like kingdom of heaven language. Here comes the ruler. And in just a week after that, as Jesus had predicted, he will be put on a Roman cross 
he will die, yet his kingship will be confirmed by God himself when Jesus is risen from the grave. We're in this week that is dominated by the cloud of what is to come, that Jesus is going to have the big events, his death and resurrection. That when is important for understanding this parable. Who is Jesus talking to? Because sometimes you read the parable and you go, that's just like me. Well, maybe it is. Maybe there's a step before you get there. Jesus is talking to, we read, them in verse 1. Who's the them? The chief priests and the Pharisees. Now again, thus far, relations with the chief priests and the Pharisees, they haven't gone well. The chief priests and the Pharisees are guys who by the conclusion of this, and even before this, are enemies to Jesus. They, they have conflict with Jesus and they will seek to put him to death. So, if you were a betting person, would you guess this is going to be a happy parable? Keep doing what you're doing. Or a call for change parable. You guys are in danger and you need to change. It's a change parable. It's one that's going to highlight that something for the Pharisees and the chief priests is not going right. So now we're ready to jump in. Jump in with me. Jesus told them, the kingdom of heaven is like, what's it like? Well, it's like a king who hosted a wedding banquet for his son. No mention of a bride at this point. The king's very excited about his beloved son and he's holding this wedding banquet. Now, I was at a wedding just two days ago. And you might have been at a wedding recently as well. We're going to have to do some cultural adjustment at this point. Because the banquet I went to went for a few hours and it came after the wedding time, the, the nuptials. Weddings in these times are more like festivals. Go for like up to a week. I suspect that what we're looking at here is not the wedding reception that we're all used to going to. In fact, probably a closer modern-day equivalent is kind of like what they do in the States where they have those um, wedding rehearsal dinners where before the actual ceremony, everyone has a banquet and there's this spirit of anticipation of what we're about to do. And it makes a lot of sense for this time where you can imagine travellers coming in. You can't sort of say wedding at 4 p.m. in Bethlehem. People don't have watches. You're not going to be able to nail the time just like that. They're week-long things. Here is this uh, wedding banquet that's thrown for a son, and it's, come, let's get ready. This new family is about to be joined together. In fact, because this is a king, the spirit of anticipation is even greater. It's, come, everybody, for the son that I love is getting married, and further, your king, your future king, my heir, the guy who will continue to reign over you, the guy who will manifest my blessing to you, the guy who you unite with as a kingdom, he's getting married, his kingdom is dawning. Come celebrate in this great anticipation at this banquet. This is the son that I love, this is my heir. And this king has a gracious desire an all-consuming desire to share the goodness of the kingdom with everybody. That's what we read through verses 3 to 4. Now, don't be confused. This is not a king who's sitting at home desperate for friends. Oh, there's no one to play with in the palace. That's not our man. 
this is a king who reigns over a kingdom, who loves his son, who looks forward to the future and says, come, come everyone, celebrate the future, come acknowledge the reign that is to come in my son. So what's the response? Distracted at best, rebellious at worst, verses five to six. Some paid no attention, had other stuff going on. Their own little kingdoms. Got to milk the cows. Got to shear the sheep. Got to attend to my business. And so they got on with their own business for their little micro kingdom was more important to them than celebrating the future of the bigger kingdom they were a part of. Now remember, our king's not desperate for friends. He's a gracious king. He wants to celebrate all the goodness of this kingdom. Not a tyrant king who says, okay, everybody, bring bring the best fruits from your farm to come and contribute to the wedding of my son. He says, no, no, I killed my cattle. I've prepared my dinner. I've got the best stuff, and I want to give it to you because I want you in my kingdom. Not desperate for friends, gracious to share, and no pushover. And so in the face of rebellion, he exercises vengeance, and he destroys those who destroy his messengers. They counter themselves out of his kingdom, and so he counts them out of his kingdom. But his grace won't be beaten. He expands the guest list, doesn't he? He says to his servants, okay, look, let's read this together from verses 8. He says to his servants, look, the wedding banquet is, is ready, but those that I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Anyone? Yeah. Anyone from the street corners? Yeah, from the street corners. So what do they do? Verse 10. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find. The bad, as well as the good. I don't know what the criteria was for good or bad, but it's pretty broad. Anyone they could find. The good, the bad, and probably the ugly too. They're all there. The good and the bad. And the wedding hall is now filled with guests. Seems everything's working, right? Now we've got a crowd. Strike up the band. Get Ian Barnett in here to marry these guys. Let's make it happen. There's a problem. The king comes out and he surveys the guests. And verse 11 tells us there's a problem guest. The king came out to see the guests and he noticed there was a man who was not wearing wedding clothes. Now remember, the king said invite anyone. This is not an issue of there was a man who was poor. This is not an issue of there was a man who had a bad reputation. This is not a a thing of, oh, that guy's too good and he might take the shine away. Like, you know how you're not meant to wear white to a wedding because that's just the... It's not that kind of situation. What I suspect is going on here is that this man has turned up for a party. Great. But he has no anticipation for what is to come. This party was a wedding banquet of anticipation of the big day for the king's son. And the big day for the king's son is a big day for the kingdom. 
And a big day for the kingdom is a big day for all who would count themselves a part of that kingdom. But this man just turned up for a free feed. And so what does the king say to him? You can't stay. Friend, thanks for receiving the invitation, but you have no anticipation of what is to come. You are not dressed for a wedding. You haven't seen what is coming for my son. Here ends the story. So what's the lesson about the kingdom of heaven? Well, I suspect Jesus, as he speaks to these guys, these chief priests and Pharisees, contemplating what is ahead of him in the Passion Week, is telling a story of how the kingdom of heaven works. And so he says, look, the kingdom of heaven is like a kingdom that has a gracious king, because the kingdom of heaven has always had a gracious God, not a God desperate for friends, no way, but a God full in himself, full of love, wanting to share, and so in his grace... He invites people to share, and he has a guest list. In fact, the pages of salvation history tell us that God had chosen for himself. His words, though the whole earth is mine, you will be my treasured possession. He invites the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, to be the guests of the kingdom. Who's he talking to again? The Pharisees and the chief priests the ruling class of the remnant of Israel. And he says, you know what? Your family didn't do so well because these guys can trace their lineage back all through Israel. He says, like those original guests, distracted at best, rebellious at worst. He's recounting the history that the Bible will talk about where they killed the prophets. They ignored the prophets They ignored the servants that the king, God, had sent. Now, here's where he's really going to get these chief priests and and Pharisees offside. But here's something Matthew, in particular, as an author, wants us to know. He says the guest list is going to be broadened beyond Jews. If you've ever wondered why there are different Gospels, there are four of them, they all write with a different purpose, celebrating something of Jesus. My understanding of Matthew is he writes that all Jewish Christians might understand the place of non-Jewish Christians within the kingdom of heaven. He says, look, you're all going to be united in Christ. And so what he's saying here is, you know what? Though the original, the original recipients of invitation have failed, God has broadened it. In fact, when Jesus comes in Matthew's gospel at the start and says the kingdom of heaven is near, you know what else he says? He says, a great light has dawned to those who are living in darkness. What he is saying is, those who were once not invited are now invited. The kingdom of heaven is no longer a nationalistic thing about Israel or the Jewish people first selected, it is something that I am opening to everybody. So go to the street corners, find the good, the bad, and the ugly, and invite them to come. That's not something a Pharisee or a chief priest wants to hear. And if nothing else, this parable highlights one other thing oh so important, particularly in Passion Week, that this invitation was all about the Son.
the kingdom of heaven is just like a king who loves his son, who says, here is the future of the kingdom. Come acknowledge him, come celebrate him. And Jesus has just told the people who want to see him killed, the people who call him blasphemer, the people who... Pharisees are the ruling class in the Sanhedrin. Pharisees are guys known as the ones who build the hedge. That is, they make all these laws around the law of God because they say, look, it's so precious, we want to keep everybody back. Chief priests are actually Sadducees, another sect of Judaism, but they have bought the high priesthood. They've actually bought the high priesthood so they control the temple where people are said to meet with God. And now Jesus has come to these guys and said, yeah, I know you rule the council, I know you rule the temple, but guess what? God's made everything bigger. It's all about me and it's for everybody. These guys are enraged at this point. And he's saying to them, you are not prepared for the kingdom of heaven. You, though you've been invited, though you've turned up for the party, you reject the son. And because you reject the son, you cannot stay. Because you reject the son, you will be excluded from this kingdom that he reigns in. I told you it wasn't a parable of a, yeah, you keep going the way you're going. This is a parable Jesus uses at a particular time to say the kingdom of heaven is like this and you are going like that. You must come to see the son. You must acknowledge him. So what does it mean for Shane? What does it mean for you today? What does it mean for everyone watching at home? Well, in the same way, the kingdom of heaven is all about a gracious God. A God not desperate for friends, but a God so abounding in love and goodness that he wants to share it with me and he wants to share it with you. He wants to share it with the good, the bad, and the ugly. And Jesus wants us to know that wherever the kingdom of heaven manifests, and guess what? It manifests right here in this church. God's people, God's place, under God's rule. And what does Jesus say about it? All are invited. All are invited. Now, I doubt there's anyone who's going to say, no, they're not. But let me ask you a different way. What kind of a person is welcome here? I've met too many people in my life who have said things, oh, if I ever darkened a church's doorstep, the roof would fall in. They're mistaken, according to Jesus. Who has a fair opinion about how churches work? Does he not? He says, all are invited. And sometimes we forget that. Let me ask you a different way. Um, How long does it take before someone can say they belong to a church? There's some funny things we do sometimes as churches. Sometimes if someone's been here many, many years, many, many years, their grandfather laid the foundation stone. And actually, if you look carefully on that foundation stone, you'll see his name inscribed on it. And as people do wonderful things and serve for a long time, we start to inscribe their names on tablets and things like that. How long do I need to come? How good do I need to be 
before I can have a stone? Can I have a stone straight away? How come that guy gets a stone? Jesus says all are invited. It's a real challenge. There are little things we can do that make our, our, sometimes make it seem like some are more invited or some are more belonging or some are more worthy than others. We use language like my church. You might think that's a good thing to say. Uh, my church is the kind of language that maybe says I've taken ownership of these things. It, it, it's mine. What about the church I belong to? I confess as a, as a leader in church, we sometimes do this as a team, we'll use language like our people. We're only trying to be uh, loving, compassionate, and, and, and with. But for me and for those who use that language, they're not our people. They're Christ's people. We might not even know them yet. But if they turn up and they say, this is where I belong, then this is where they belong. Jesus says, all are invited to the kingdom. But he also has a word of challenge for us. Not all are chosen. All are invited, but not all are chosen. Now, this chosen language makes us feel funny sometimes. We don't like the idea of God choosing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. God's sovereign, God's big, controls everything. Not my salvation, though, no. I prefer to think of God as like that kind person at work who brings the cookie jar and sort of puts it in the center, and anyone who wants a salvation cookie can just walk up and take one and walk away, and he's got nothing to do with it. But that kind of steals God's sovereignty and his control over things. And sometimes we jump to the other side and go, well, if God's choosing, there's got nothing to do with me, I won't even tell people about Jesus. I won't even tell myself, I'll just see what God wants to do. And that's quite fatalistic. But what the scriptures say here is, all are invited, don't worry about God's business, which is choosing. Worry about your business, which is coming along not just for a party or a community but to look to his son to have the wedding clothes that look and go ah this is all about the son Jesus the Christ the one God loves the one God says this is the one who will reign over my kingdom this is the one through all my blessings flow so come and celebrate him Make him your king. He is your future. He is your hope. And so here's a tricky but important word that I need to share with you gathered here this morning and you online. For this church that is a manifestation of the kingdom of heaven, everybody is welcome. I promise you, just like the king in this story said, friend, you will always be called friend. You will always be welcome. You will always be loved. You will always be treasured. You will always be prayed for. You will always be hoped for. But until you receive Jesus, you will never belong. We will always love you. We will always hope for you. But until you receive Jesus, until you look to the Son, you will never belong. And if there's one thing this parable teaches us is that someday the king enters the room and he'll survey the guests. You don't want to be that person he comes to and says, how'd you get in here? 
friend, we always loved you. Friend, we always cared for you. But now it's time to leave. In here is a celebration of joy. But you are now excluded. You'll always be welcome. Everyone's invited. But outside of Jesus, you will never belong. This parable sits in a whole story that is pointing to a Friday. It's just like in the parable, it's all about the sun's big day. I once heard it said, you know, you can sit in a garage all your life and it won't make you a car. You might start to smell a little new car you might smell like oil, you might smell like petrol, even like rubber. But you'll never be a car sitting in a garage. You can come to the party and you'll always be welcome. But until you come to Jesus, you never belong. And the future is not hopeful. So in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. It's called Come to the Altar. Now, I don't know if you even know what an altar is because we don't have one in our church. We don't need one in our church. An altar is a place where sacrifices are offered. Our altar was 2,000 years ago. Our altar was a cross. And on that cross, Jesus was sacrificed. Jesus gave his life for mine and he gave his life for yours. The invitation is come to see my son and celebrate his big day where he dies for the dysfunction and sin of all of us so that our debt is cleared and he rises to new life so that hope and new life can be ours. We're in a series called Make Your Life Count. We just read a parable where some people thought they could make their life count by attending to that business they had to do or looking after their own little kingdom. But the king said, come see my son. I want to say to you this morning or whenever you watch this, make your life count by trusting in his life. And so I invite you as we uh, stand in just a moment and sing these words, come to the altar. But if you've never done it before, maybe you've been sitting in this church, maybe you're that guy who laid the foundation stone. If you've never done business with Jesus, today is the day to come to the altar. Today is the day to put on the wedding gear, to say, ah, see what this is about. I've come to put my hope in the one who died for me and the one who rose again, that eternal life, will be mine. I invite you now as we sing, come to the altar. Come and put your faith in the one who loves us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you for he who laid down his life for us. We thank you that all are invited. We acknowledge that we only belong when we acknowledge him. And so I pray now, Father, for each and every one of us that we would humble ourselves, stop trusting our own achievement, and instead, celebrate with you the King of glory, the one who had the big day, the one in whom there is life and life eternal, our Lord Jesus, in whom, whose name we pray.